We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Michael Gottlieb, a physician and immunologist who is credited with identifying AIDS as a new disease in 1981. Dr. Gottlieb is a graduate of Rutgers University and the University of Rochester School of Medicine and was a postdoctoral fellow in immunology at Stanford University. He is medical advisor to the Global AIDS Interfaith Alliance, a not-for-profit that addresses HIV and AIDS in Malawi, Africa. Michael, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm a believer that much can be learned from the lessons of history, and your career is able to illustrate recent history related to the identification of a novel virus. So I can't wait to hear this story and see what we might learn from you. Is there anything else that you'd like the audience to know about you before I get started with questions? Well, first of all, thank, uh, Ted, thanks for having me on. Uh, no, nothing much. Uh, be happy to tell you a bit about the background and, and, and how I chose immunology as a field. Yes, let's start with that. So maybe, do tell us about your background, your journey into medicine, and how you became interested in immunology as a career field. Well, I was born in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is where Rutgers University is located. And my dad taught at the local high school. Uh, my mom was a homemaker. Uh, they both believed in scholarship and in, in studies and thought that science was a good thing. So, in fact, they made us take German in a high school because uh, back in the day, that was the language of science. Of course, that's changed. Uh, language of science is now English. So my older brother became a professor of molecular biology at the University of Texas, and I went to med school after a brief flirtation with becoming a history scholar and history professor. My younger brother became a trial attorney. Uh, I was very fortunate in going to the University of Rochester uh, Medical School uh, because it uh, had a particular bent toward the integration of psychiatry and medicine. And I find that a lot of what I do as a clinician has been uh, the, the integration of, of, of behavioral health with medical science. And that's something I enjoy. I think my father hoped to go to medical school, uh, but that door was not open to him at the time. And my older brother, who I've already mentioned, liked basic science, the laboratory. He liked being at the bench. So I was more of a people person who uh, was interested in mixing the humanities and science. I think it's a lot of what's involved in being a good clinician. So why immunology? Uh, in the late 1960s, immunology was emerging, specifically the area that we call cellular immunology, T cells and B cells and the role of specific cells in mediating the immune response, for example, in transplantation and in cancer. It was a new frontier. There were new technologies coming on board. For example, monoclonal antibodies were becoming available. 
uh, for diagnostics and eventually therapeutics. And in the 70s, we, we got the polymerase chain reaction for rapid uh, diagnosis of microbial pathogens. Bone marrow transplantation was being used uh, to correct inborn immune deficiencies. And autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis were poorly understood. They were a mystery and they were, they were inadequately managed. Also, uh, my older brother, who I've mentioned as a graduate student, uh, had worked on a team that had determined the uh, amino acid structure and 3D structure of an immunoglobulin molecule. And it was the first such work of that kind for which their boss shared the Nobel Prize. So there were big breakthroughs happening in the field of immunology. Uh, basic immunology was exciting and clinical immunology. Uh, the application to patients was just about to take off. That is some great background. And it's really cool that your, your, your work and your brother's work kind of intersected a bit there uh, in the world of immunology. Well, I think our siblings do influence us in terms of uh, our career choices. And uh, uh, he was very influential to me. Yeah, great. So can you tell us the story of the early days of the AIDS crisis and how you recognized that a new clinical entity existed and how you identified it as being caused by a virus? Well, uh, I have to make it very clear that what, what I did early on was uh, identified AIDS as a new syndrome or a new disease, the clinical syndrome of AIDS. I didn't uh, identify HIV itself. That that fell to uh, Francoise Barre-Semusi and, uh, and uh, Luc Montagnier and Robert Gallo and Jay Levy uh, at the University of California, San Francisco, to identify uh, the causative agent. So my very first patient was a previously healthy gay man with a rare pneumonia, pneumocystis. And my first thought at the time was that he'd be a single case report and that he would eventually be found to have a condition that was already in the textbook. Then two more gay men with fevers and weight loss were referred, and they too had pneumocystis pneumonia. And by then, we had found in the laboratory that all three of these patients had an absence, a virtual absence, of their CD4 T-cells, or so-called helper T-cells. They were severely depleted, almost to the point of having gone missing. And the picture of an immune deficiency came into focus. In other words, uh, three patients who happened to be gay all had the same pneumonia and all had the same T-cell deficiency. And so it looked like they had this immune deficiency that predisposed them to this opportunistic infection, pneumocystis. So about the virus, we theorized that these men had been exposed to some common environmental influence or possibly pathogen. And since sexually transmitted diseases were more common in sexually active gay men than in the general population, we made a big jump to thinking that, in fact, there was some sexually transmitted pathogen that was causing the immune deficiency. And 
The finding that CD4 cells were so depleted led to the theory that some kind of pathogen, most likely a T-cell tropic virus, was involved in the pathogenesis of the immune deficiency and felt others to actually uh, use that information to isolate the virus from tissues of patients with the syndrome. Interesting. So once you identified that first patient, how was it that other that the second two and then subsequent patients actually came to your attention? Were they referred to you or were you looking for other cases or, or describe, give us some context about how that actually happened? Well, I'm very fortunate to be an academic institution, UCLA, uh, with a large network of, of faculty at multiple hospitals and a colleague at the Veterans Administration Hospital had been moonlighting in the San Fernando Valley and had consulted on a couple of these patients with fevers of unknown origin. And he was a rheumatologist by training, and they thought these patients might have some underlying vasculitis or other cause of fever. And so he was not the primary on the case, but he introduced me to the man who was the primary physician on those cases. And that doctor was kind enough to refer those patients into UCLA. And so they arrived with fevers of unknown origin, And based on our very first patient, we immediately did bronchoscopies on the second and third patients. And that's how we found the second and third case of pneumocystis. So it was a bit of serendipity. It was a bit of being at an academic center that allowed me to collect multiple cases. And it, it sort of spawned the idea that, indeed, this might be something new and potentially very, very large. Interesting. And, and just for our audience's um, knowledge, bronchoscopy is when you take a, a camera and, and look down into the bronchial trees, into the tubes in the lung, and, and in this case are, are taking some cells out to help you identify the cause of the infection, correct? Right. Pneumocystis, for the most part, doesn't find its way up into the sputum unless you induce a sputum. And so bronchoscopy is actually putting a fiber optic tubes or scope down into the lung to sample uh, the fluids or tissue. Great, great. Thank you for that context. So I understand that you wanted to report these initial findings in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of kind of the, the, the big journals in the medical world, but that because publication would take several months from the time you submitted to the time the journal actually came out, you submitted a brief article with your findings to the Centers for Disease Control's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. What was the original response to your findings and to this publication? So my first thought was to approach the New England Journal. And I made a cold call to the editor. And remarkably, it got through. And uh, Mandy Arnold Relman, a nephrologist, kidney doctor. He explained uh, how long it would take to review a manuscript. He said he would be interested in seeing the manuscript, uh, but said if I, was, if I thought it was a matter of public health importance that I should notify CDC and put an item in the MMWR. And uh, he, would, he, he said at the time that he would not consider that prior publication because there was a rule at the New England Journal called the Inglefinger Rule which was uh, from Franz Engelfinger, one of the uh, associate editors. 
And that is, if you publish something in the New England Journal and you aired it somewhere else before the magazine came out, that you would never publish in the journal again. Wow. And so Dr. Relman told me that uh, he would not consider a report in the MMWR as violating the Inglefinger rule. In other words, that he would consider the manuscript. And in fact, uh, some months later, the journal accepted and published the manuscript of our first paper. So uh, when the MMWR came out, the response was dramatic. Uh, doctors called from all across the country telling me about their own cases, thanking me for helping them understand their own single, isolated, mysterious patient, and asking for advice. And because of the gay male connection, CDC sent teams of investigators into uh, the urban areas with large gay communities, San Francisco, New York, Houston, and they found more cases. And they sent uh, teams to Miami where it was happening among Haitian immigrants. And so they got a much fuller picture of uh, a national HIV or AIDS epidemic. And we had been working in a vacuum in isolation in uh, sunny Southern California, where in fact, this was happening all over the country. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, w one of my goals here was really to try to make connections between your experience with the AIDS crisis and what's going on now with COVID-19 to see what we can learn. And it almost sounds like y your publication in the CDC's MMWR, that weekly report, was almost like what today is happening in these Facebook um, physician groups where they're talking about their experience and and building upon the knowledge very rapidly in that setting, it, it, it sounds fair, pretty similar. I agree. And uh, technology today is, uh, you know, should have facilitated a much more rapid awareness of what was happening. And yet we find ourselves, despite that, behind the curve. Right. So a Chinese physician, uh, Li Wenliang. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Woo! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Who unfortunately passed away from COVID-19 is the one who's credited with recognizing the presence of the disease process known as COVID-19, or at least it, he may not have actually discovered, but, but started to make it public. Do you have any insights into what made him or his group recognize that something new was occurring, which would be particularly difficult to identify during cold and flu season since the symptoms of COVID-19 are, are quite similar to cold and flu symptoms? Well, first of all, I really feel for him. And I feel for his family. This guy was a hero. And, uh, you know, I think about being the canary in the coal mine 
and how he kind of was. And, you know, were it not for HIV's different modes of transmission, that might have been me 40 years ago. Fortunately, HIV was not transmitted by droplet transmission. It was very specific ways that HIV was transmitted. So I certainly feel for that doctor. And I feel for the doctor who, uh, who the Italian doctor who was involved in the SARS epidemic in, I believe, Vietnam, who succumbed to, to SARS back in, in 09. So getting to your question, I, I agree that in a viral respiratory season, it had to be a difficult call for him to identify something new. To me, the distinguishing feature of uh, COVID-19 is the profound shortness of breath these patients experience. That's something that's not seen with most common respiratory infections, including influenza. With the flu, cough is very prominent and can be debilitating, but shortness of breath with COVID Progressing rapidly in some cases to respiratory failure is is dramatic. And to me, that would have been the signal that this is something unusual. And I imagine it was the same for him. Yes. And in both cases, with your experience with uh, the early days of AIDS recognition and with SARS and with COVID now, there's a fair amount of pattern recognition where it takes somebody to say, hey, this, what I'm seeing just doesn't quite fit with what we typically see. And and being willing to say, hey, there's something different here and I need to start raising the alarms or at least looking for additional pieces of this pattern. And in a way, it's almost a needle in a haystack type of situation. Would would you agree with that? Right. And, and, And of course, you have to have people who are willing to listen. And I know he tried to alert the authorities and uh, he was hushed up. People didn't want to hear it. Yes. And that actually leads um, to my next question. So he, he was a Chinese physician and interestingly, an ophthalmologist and not really dealing with colds and flus and, and those types of things. He was admonished and essentially silenced by Chinese authorities, at least initially. Did you experience anything similar in the, in the early 1980s when I imagine there, there may have been some stigma uh, associated with what you were looking into with this AIDS crisis? That didn't happen right away. The very first, there was a great deal of interest in the medical community uh, and amongst the news media. There were actually a lot of compliments from the medical community. In the 1980s, there was a big time lack of communication from the top about AIDS. It wasn't talked about. There wasn't leadership. And so some of us early AIDS doctors uh, continued to talk about it to keep interested communities abreast of what was happening, prevent uh, precautions, uh, prevention, treat possible treatments. Surgeon General Coop was an exception in the Reagan administration. He was very outspoken about, uh, about HIV AIDS. And when critiqued about it, he said, I'm the Surgeon General of all the people, which was just wonderful. Yeah. Was. So some of us early uh, doctors continue to talk to the uh, to the media and the newspaper, and, and I would be called in by my chief of medicine, and he would say, Mike, I saw your name in the paper again this morning, and uh, it wasn't a, a moment of praise. So it, it just didn't sit well with my bosses at the medical school. So I wasn't silenced, 
However, uh, I was told that, uh, that I was not the spokesperson on AIDS for the institution. Interesting. And did they actually ask you to stop talking about it? Or was it just a subtle oh. request to not talk about it so much? No, no. It was, it was simply, you are not the spokesperson on AIDS for the institution, which basically said, probably should just shut up. Got it. Got it. So, um, Michael, what can we as a medical community and as a society learn about the HIV and AIDS epidemic that might be applied to the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. There's some similarities, and of course, there are differences. The biggest difference is that HIV was not casually transmitted. But as a similarity, both diseases are zoonoses, animal viruses that crossed over into the human species. And we've been told over and over in the last 20 years by scientists and even in movies that we can expect events like this going forward. And remarkably, we haven't prepared for them. To me, the glaring similarity between the epidemics or pandemics is, is how behind the curve we were for both. With AIDS, it was the reluctance of the Reagan administration to engage because of who they perceived had been infected. Gay men, IV drug users, not the favorites of that administration. With COVID, it appears that the warnings fell on deaf ears. The administration minimized the threat and was slow to mobilize for internal reasons, very complex internal reasons, having to deal with the politics of trade and China being involved. Uh, and clearly a different situation, but the end result was an unfortunate delay. Right. So some of the takeaways here are being cautious about delays and letting implicit and explicit bias factor into public health decisions. And, and what, what I'm hoping comes out of this is that we as a nation and, and as a world are, are more prepared for the next pandemic because it really is a matter of when and not if, you know, these things happen and we need to be prepared the next time around. And there will be a next time. And I think the other, other lesson, Ted, is that, that politics and public health don't mix. Playing politics with public health really doesn't, doesn't mix. And, uh, you know, our bureaucrats, our full-time uh, people, people like uh, Anthony Fauci, you know, should be in a position to tell the truth. And some of our positions, like the director of CDC, shouldn't be a political position. It should be a line, bureaucratic position, somebody with elite qualifications charged to protect the public health. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, so there's been stigma attached to HIV that has persisted to this day. And now we're hearing stories of stigmatization and racial profiling occurring with COVID-19. Would you care to comment on what we've seen with HIV and what's occurring with this current pandemic? Sure. The blame game seems to be a recurrent theme with epidemics. Uh, people are scared and angry and they lash out. It's irrational. It's a virus that's at fault. It doesn't do any good to call HIV an African or Haitian virus or COVID a Chinese virus 
we are in fact all in this together. It's a flat earth, there's jet travel, any outbreak of anything anywhere in the world can affect other continents, other regions. Of course, lack of transparency by health authorities, that's something different. In other words, we could have used an earlier warning. So the point I'm making is that we're all in this together. It's flat earth, jet travel, transportation between regions and continents, an outbreak anywhere in the world can affect the rest of us. And so we all have to be committed to uh, detecting it early and addressing it collaboratively. Of course, lack of transparency by any health authority at the point of an outbreak is something different. It has been almost 40 years since AIDS was identified, and we still don't have a vaccine against HIV. Could you tell us a bit about what makes vaccine development for HIV so difficult? Well, I'm by no means an expert in vaccine development, uh, but my understanding is that the ongoing genetic evolution of the envelope protein of, of HIV and uh, the fact that we still don't absolutely know what aspect of the immune system needs to be revved up to generate immunity. Those are the two basic problems with finding an HIV vaccine that ironically was promised probably uh, back in 1983. Right. Now, the flu vaccine has to be changed every year so that we can try to cover the strains that we think will be present in the fall and winter. Again, understanding you're not a vaccine expert, but what, what can we learn from HIV vaccine development and the way that flu works to potentially help with vaccine development for COVID-19? Do you have any insights into that at all? Well, I wouldn't expect developing a COVID vaccine to be as difficult as HIV, uh, but it's not going to be simple. There are lots of questions and potential problems. We don't know everything about the biology of this strain. It's, it's new. Most Vaccine developers will target the characteristic spike protein of the uh, SARS coronavirus, and that protein could possibly uh, mutate over time like influenza. I say could because we just don't know yet. Once we have candidate vaccines, we have to be sure they don't make the situation worse. For example, cause a more severe damaging immune response in the lungs once vaccinated individuals are infected with the real thing, because this is an epithelial surface, the lining of the respiratory tract, an antibody, the wrong antibody associating there with the virus could potentially precipitate something like the cytokine storm that we have recognized clinically in some of these patients. And the last question, of course, is if we get some immunity from a vaccine, just how long will that immunity last? Will it be necessary to revaccinate every few years? Right. And the question is even coming up if, if you've been infected with COVID 19, you know, are you actually immune? And if you are immune, how long will that immunity last? There's, there's just a lot that we don't know and are having to speculate at this point, right? That's right. If, you're, if, if you've been infected, uh, just what kind of antibodies do you have? Do you have effective neutralizing antibody or are you at risk for becoming uh, reinfected? There are more questions than answers, but I'm hopeful that, uh, that we can marshal 
the uh, uh, level of great science between uh, the federal science establishment and the pharmaceutical industry to to beat this back. Yes, there's a lot of work being done on it. Michael, one of the questions that I've been asking each of my guests is if there is a small business or a restaurant in your community that you might want to give a mention to or even to more than one with the idea that these small business owners and all of the workers who work there are really having a hard time and struggling and anything that we can do to support them would be great. It may be thinking about doing some takeout at one of the local restaurants if you feel okay about doing that. I understand you're in Pasadena, California. Are there any places in your neighborhood that you'd like to mention and encourage people to um, support? Well, thank you, Ted, for that for that opportunity. Yes, I would uh, mention uh, Restaurant Shiro, spelled S-H-I-R-O, in South Pasadena, a favorite of mine, and Union Restaurant in Old Town, Pasadena, which uh, has offered uh, takeout as well. I'd also uh, like to mention a not-for-profit called Friends Indeed in Pasadena, which has a food bank. And uh, it's especially helpful uh, to people who are homeless or and particularly homeless women uh, living uh, amongst us. That's great, Michael. We will make sure that those establishments get into the show notes and encourage our listeners that if you're in the area to consider supporting them or other small businesses, certainly that food bank is a a worthy recipient of people's attention. So we'll get that information out through the show notes and through social media. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to join us and to help educate me and our audience on this really interesting topic and provide a little bit of historical context to what we're dealing with now. Because as I said at the outset, I really think that if we are students of history, it can help us inform our approach to the present. And so we, we thank you for, for providing your expertise. And thank you, Ted. Delighted to be with you. All right. Well, have a good rest of your day, Michael, and stay safe. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.